theyeshiva.net. Pesach comes, and the source of the mitzvahs of Pesach is in Parsha's boy. And every Jewish seder the world over, we're all familiar with the declaration. Tata, ichvel bader fregen fir Whatever language one says it, in Yiddish or Hebrew or Russian or French. Father, I'm going to ask you four questions. Why is this night different than all other nights? Four traditional questions. Today here at this class, I'm going to take the courage and ask a fifth question. The fifth question is, does anybody know an answer to the four questions? In all your years of Pesach, has your daddy or mommy ever answered the four questions? It's interesting. Your child, who may be five, six, seven, eight, four, three, or eleven, asked you four questions. How long should it take you to answer? They ask you a question, answer it. They ask you four questions, answer it. Usually it takes two or three hours. By that time they're sleeping, and usually you're sleeping. But the funny thing is, look through the Haggadah. Does anybody ever answer the questions? At least at some point the Haggadah should say, okay, here's answer to question number one, question number two, question number three, question number four. I know of no Seder in the world that that happens. They're throwing frogs. They're throwing wild animals. They're pouring wine. They're yearning for eggs. They're starving. They're hungry. They're singing. They're jumping. Everyone according to their menagam. Stealing the Afrikaiman. Not stealing the Afrikaiman. Somebody protesting the stealing the Afrikaiman. Getting an uh, iPhone for the Afrikaiman. An iPod. An iPad. A Lamborghini. A uh, private jet. And recently... It's now a private yacht. In my days, the richest kids got a calculator for the Afrikaner. I mean, you remember? You came to school with a calculator, and you were on top of the world. Today, your kid won't talk to you anymore if you give him a calculator. He may disown your calculator. What am I? Yeah? If you got a Parker pen, whoo, this is already a Rockefeller family. The Rockefellers got Parker pens for Afrikaners, right? Try giving today a Parker pen for the Afikoiman. Interesting. Yeah, other people got a bag of potato chips for the, for the Afikoiman. If you got a bike for the Afikoiman, it was priceless. In essence, though, whatever the meaning is, nobody ever stops and says, what's the answer to the four questions? Of course, like a lot of things in life, you got to figure it out on your own. And to think about it, maybe that's part of the definition of freedom. Maybe part of the definition of freedom is life has many questions. And maybe somebody will not come to you at a point and say, here's the answer to question number one, question number two, question number three, question number four. The idea of a free person versus a slave is that sometimes you have to figure out your own answers. As much as you have and you're privileged to teachers, to parents, to mentors, to guides, to leaders, whom we cherish, whose wisdom and inspiration we hold so dear, and we look to for guidance. Nonetheless, sometimes the great, deep questions you have to answer yourself. Because everyone's journey is collective, but is also individual. As David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Ani yadati ki gadol Hashem. I know. He's not just emphasizing the second half of the verse, he's also emphasizing the first half of the verse. Most emphasize the second half of the verse. I know that God is great. I know. And the way I know it, nobody else could know it. The way you know it, nobody else could know it. So sometimes the definition of freedom is, I can't expect to get an answer for every question from somebody else. There are people who want to live their lives that way, but in many ways it's a life of slavery. That's what a slave is. A slave wakes up in the morning and somebody prepared the schedule completely. There's not a minute where you have to decide. And some people want to live that way. There's a certain security in that. There's a security in somebody else telling me everything. But that's a sign of infancy 
or slavery. And usually children themselves rebel against it because they want to be free. You have to know when to give and when not to give in. But as adults, we sometimes want to surrender everything to somebody else. There's a problem in that. There's a beautiful thing in it. There's also a problem in it. And the problem in it is, I'm not ready to assume my freedom. I'm not ready to assume responsibility. Just tell me everything. There's people who want to know when to go to the dentist. How to go to the dentist. I get emails from people who want to know interesting things that I asked a person for this, you send an email overseas. You have a mind, you have a heart, soul. Use it, cherish it, develop it. It's good to ask. It's good to seek wisdom, but never at the expense of appreciating that there's certain questions in life only you can answer. Nobody else can answer those questions. I'll tell you a story, a very beautiful story that I heard from the person himself. It, uh, it gives, I think, a very healthy perspective in life. His name is Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb. He's your brother. Okay. So you're going to authenticate the story, right? You, you'll text him as I'm talking, and you'll tell everybody that it's as real as I say it to you. I heard it from him himself. Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, Zolzain Gesund, is a... Uh, has been the leader of the OU for many years. I think still carries the title of President Emeritus of uh, OU, right? Orthodox Union. A rabbi, a, a leader, a mentor, has translated, uh, is translating the Gemara, the Koran Gemara, Steinzalt's Gemara into English. A great scholar and Talmud Chachem. And well known in the Jewish scene. Huh? Very good, very good. And his sister taught him everything he knows. And even that which he didn't discover yet. But over the next few years, he'll discover it. I heard the following story from him. He was living in Baltimore, in Maryland. This is the late 60s or the early 70s. And to quote him, he was in his early 30s, but... The midlife crisis has come a little early in his life. And he was at a crossroad in many areas, plagued by profound uncertainty. He said on one level it was theological issues. Questions in Amuna, questions in Judaism that ordinary people and scholarly people and all types of people have. Intellectual questions, emotional questions, spiritual questions. Life presents questions doubts, dilemmas. There was also confusion on a practical level in terms of his vocation, his career. Should he continue with the rabbinate? Should he go get a degree in psychology? Should he shift course and get involved in other things? There were questions he said about his own marriage and personal life and children, family life. Just a lot of questions. They come together at some point in life. And as we would say, you feel like you know a ton of bricks hit you in your forehead and what do we do now? And he said to me, he said, I was thinking, who should I, I need somebody to consult. I need somebody to ask these questions. I need somebody who's wise. I need somebody who's empathetic. I need somebody who will understand. I need somebody who will be appreciative of my reality, of my conditions. But I also need somebody who's objective. <laughs> somebody who's not part of my world. Somebody I didn't grow up with. Somebody who doesn't put me into any framework. Somebody who doesn't know me. I just needed somebody from outside of my circles. I said, why didn't, I asked him, why didn't you go to your teacher, your Rebbe? He said, he didn't want to. I wanted to go to somebody from a completely different place. So he decided that he's going to go seek a consultation from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He lived in Baltimore. The Rebbe lived in, in Brooklyn, in the Crownite section of Brooklyn. You could make an appointment, it took some time, and he would come take a train or take a car and come visit and go in to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and display. The Rebbe would see people usually three or two times a week, starting at night. His appointments would start 8.30 p.m. and would usually go till 7 in the morning. That's when he would see people, throughout the night. The next day he was back in his office, usually throughout the night, usually most of the night, till 5, 6, or 7 in the morning. And... uh, 
And uh, he decided to do that. So he said he'll call 770 Eastern Parkway, talk to his secretary, and try to schedule an appointment. He called up the Lubavitcher Rebbe's secretary. His personal secretary was a Jew named Rabbi Chaim Mordechai Isaac Chodakov. Rabbi Chodakov was a very interesting person. He served in the parliament in Riga, in Latvia, before the war. He was a Yekishayid, a very, very Yekishayid. He learned in Baranovich, in Lithuania. He came from Yekish, German, Litvish background. Was a very calculated person, extremely organized person, and was extremely Yekish, as they would say. A very talented person. He was an educator, he was a pedagogue, and he was like the Lubavitcher Rebbe's chief assistant or secretary. And he called him up. And he told me it was a miracle. I got through to him the first time. And Rabbi Chadikov picks up the phone. And I say to him, I would like very much, I would be so appreciative and so grateful if you could set me up an appointment, a private audience with the Lubavitcher, with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I really need to talk to him about some pressing, urgent matters about my life and about my future. So Rabbi Chadikov asks naturally the first question, who are you? Who is this? So he told me, he said, I didn't want to say my name. I didn't want to say my name unless I was asked. So I said, Ayid from Maryland. From Maryland. I am a Jew from Mar- of Maryland. Maryland, that's who I am. So Rabbi Chadikov says, halt a minute, hold a minute. And uh, he, he worked in his own office, but there was a telephone line between his office and the Lubavitcher Rebbe's office. So he heard like a click, you know, one of those clicks on the telephone. And Rabbi Chadikov is talking to somebody low. And uh, Rabbi Weinreb hears the voice of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So I asked him, how did you know the voice? He said, because the Fabrengans of the Rebbe were often broadcast on radio, and he would listen to them. So he knew his voice very well. So he heard his voice speaking to Rabbi Chadikov. And the Rebbe asked Rabbi Chadikov, Veret, who is this? So Rabbi Chadikov says, identify yourself. He said, he didn't want to say his name. So he says, Ayid von Maryland. So the Rebbe tells Rabbi Chadikov, Frechtem vos vil, vime kenem helfen. Ask him what are his needs are. How can he be helped? So Rabbi Chadikov asks him. So Rabbi Weinrib tells Rabbi Chadikov, I have a lot of questions in life. I have questions in Amuna, questions about my family, questions about my children, questions about my career, about my vocation, about myself, about my place in this world. Just a lot of uncertainty and I could use help. So Rabbi Weinrib tells me, says Rabbi Jacobson, <laughs> I hear the Lubavitcher Rebbe tell Rabbi Chadikov, Zoktem, Edafnisht Kumensamir. Tell him there's no need for him to come to me. Sada in Baltimore, Ayid was haste, Weinreb. Zole again, so Weinreb und Fregen, Alle Shailas. There's a Jew in Baltimore whose name is Weinreb. Let him go to Weinreb and ask him all of his questions. Rabbi Chadikov is innocent. Okay, that's a good answer, right? Some good guy in Baltimore, Weinrib, go to him. The Rebbe says, you don't have to come, you don't have to schlep, you don't have to bother, you don't have to come to me, go to Weinrib. So Rabbi Chadikov, Rabbi Chadikov says over this whole, this whole speech that the Rebbe just told him. Rabbi Weinrib, you, you, you know, how would you feel? He, he's completely overwhelmed from this response. So he's quiet. He's dumbstruck. This is the last thing he would expect. Maybe yes, maybe in a month, come back, we're busy, or not, whatever, come right, whatever, but not this. So Rabbi Chadikov says, It hurt what the Rebbe sucked. Did you hear what the Rebbe said? He said, Yeah, Rabbi Ich bin Weinreb. <laughs> he, says, he said, There's something wrong. I am Weinreb. I'm from Baltimore. I said, I am Weinreb. So now Rabbi Chadikov was dumbstruck. And he was like, what? He says, tell the Rebbe that I'm the guy. 
the man he wants me to go to, he's the guy with the problems. Ich bin Weinrep. So Rabbi Chadikov, who's now has this shaky voice because he's overwhelmed, says to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, as Eris Weinrep. He says that he's Weinrep. And he tells me without skipping a heart's beat, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, Oi bazoi, zoktem as a molda fa mensch reden zu sich allein. Tell him that indeed a person must at times communicate with himself. <laughs> Rabbi Chadikov said, Thank you, Hatzlacherabba, boom. <laughs> and he's sitting there in his office, dumbstruck. But to quote him, Rabbi Weinreb, who told me, he said, this was the best piece of advice I ever received in my life. The best piece of advice. In fact, it was superior to any other piece of advice I would have received. Somehow, so the Rebbe had a sense of who I was, my nature, my character, my disposition, my personality, my destiny. And the best piece of advice he could have given to me, the healthiest, the deepest, the truest, the holiest, was this. And he said, that's what I did. I went to Weinreb, and I started to speak to Weinreb. But I started to speak to Weinreb in a way that I never spoke to him before. I started to listen to Weinreb, not only to speak to Weinreb. You could speak to Weinreb, but how do you listen to Weinreb? I started to listen. I started to listen deeply. I started to ask questions from Weinreb. And I figured out my path to the best of my ability. And he says, till today, whenever I have to make a serious decision in life, whenever I have to make a serious decision in life, things that are very urgent, including, as he put it, marriages of my children, future decisions in terms of health, in terms of family, in terms of finances, in terms of spirituality, I will close the door, I will shut off communication to the outer world, and I will try to have a deep, authentic, vulnerable, naked, raw, honest conversation with Weinreb from Baltimore, or Baltimore in the past, and listen to what he has to say. Afterwards, I may speak to others, or maybe before I may speak to others, but I'll never skip that, that uh, part of, the, that part of, the, of growth. You texted your brother? Amasamaisa? Amasamaisa? You ever heard it from him? Okay. He's in Florida, okay? Did he speak to anybody before he went? <laughs> you don't have to speak to anybody before you go to Florida, right? In the winter, okay. The 11th commandment, winter, Florida. <laughs> Now we all know the Mishnah says in Prikayavas, Aselacharav, Uknelachaver. Make for yourself a mentor or of. Acquire for yourself a friend. That's true. And indeed, this is where often the confusion in life happens. Because sometimes when people need advice so critically and they don't seek it, they often end up on a path of self-destruction. Sometimes those issues that you need advice, we often don't ask advice. Those issues that I have to speak to myself, that's where I ask advice. Part of the taking responsibility in life is differentiating between the two. There are those issues in life where a person needs advice. There's a confusing situation. There's a danger. There's an illness. There's something that you don't know how to control. There's something that you tried and it's out of hand. There's something that you're too biased. You have so many blind spots. You're carrying around pain, resentment, frustration, hatred for so many years. There's toxicity all over the place. If you sit down in your room alone, you know what's going to happen? You're going to just wallow in the toxicity. You need a breath of fresh air. You need to come to somebody who's out of your world. You need to come to somebody who could look at everything from without and say, we have to recalculate. And that takes courage. Some people have never done that in their life, and it's a pity. 
And the reason it's a pity is because they only have their own mind to be able to guide them. And the problem is their mind is part of the problem. What do I mean their mind is part of the problem? Their mind is part of the toxic influences. I think a certain way, and that's how I'm conditioned. So even if I think more and think deeper and think wider, it's all within the confined space that I'm in. I can't let myself go. I don't know how to emancipate myself. I need somebody to help me out. I need somebody to be able to open up new vistas of awareness, new vistas of perception, new vistas of experience. Critical. And that's why it says, Sometimes I also need an expert in this particular field. That's completely not a contradiction. But then there are other questions in life. And even within those questions, there are certain aspects where, as the Pasik says. For my own flesh I will perceive God. Ultimately, nobody knows your soul like you know it. And Jacob remained alone. And a man wrestled with him till dawn. So the Medrash Rabbi says, Hashem hahu. Jacob Yaakov remained alone. That's why it says about Hashem, his name will be exalted alone on that day. And that's why in Kalbach's song, he puts the two together. Nobody knows what the connection is. But it's actually in Medrash, right? <clears throat> What's the connection? The Medrash puts them together. Yaakov remained alone. God's name is exalted alone. What's the connection? So Dagomachan Ephraim says that there's a point in life where you're levadoi. Not in a depressing way. There is isolation and there is intimacy. Isolation is sometimes I feel alone. I have no friends. There's nobody I can speak to. I'm completely alone in the world. I'm alone in my pain, alone in my anxiety, alone in my toxicity, alone in, alone in my grievance, alone in my, alone in my suffering, alone in my agony. And that's a terrible predicament. Loneliness in life. Eicha yashva badad. The sense of loneliness. I am in solitary confinement. I may be surrounded by a hundred women or two hundred or three hundred, but emotionally I'm alone. I may smile. And when somebody says, how are you? It's so nice to see you. Baruch Hashem, I'm fine. I'm wonderful. But internally I am completely alone. I feel nobody can relate to me, nobody can understand me, I have nobody to speak to. That's a very tragic predicament, that sense of loneliness. But then there's something else. There's a badad. There's a badad. As Moshe Rabbeinu says, Betach Yisrael, badad. Vayivoser Yaakov levadoi. Vinizkov Hashem levadoi. There's a place of aloneness because there's something about your soul that nobody could know. There's something about your life that nobody could know. Not because nobody cares. Not because you go into a place of self-compassion where I'm this victim and I love to cry about what a tragic figure I am, which we do sometimes. Some people, it's a sense of relief. You ever do it? You just cry to yourself and think about what a tragic figure you are. Some people imagine their own funeral. They don't have any other way of feeling compassion for themselves. But uh, I know some of you think this is strange, but those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know all too well what I'm talking about. It's some way of arousing some (laughs) self-pity. Now self-pity usually is a product of victimhood. We're talking about a different type of aloneness, an aloneness that comes from empowerment, from strength, from certain things. The Pasuk says, Lev yoidea maras nafshoi. A heart knows its own bitterness, its own illness. Sometimes you could see it with a child. The whole world tells you to do something with your child. But as a mother, you know this is the wrong thing. 
And everyone tells you, you're crazy. You have to get advice, because some people are crazy. You have to get advice, because some people are blind. You have to get advice, because some people are overwhelmed. You have to get advice, because some people are clueless. It's good to get advice. But sometimes, after all the advice, there's something that you know just deep in your soul. This is right. This is wrong. And you got to trust it. Sometimes people surrender their whole destiny into the hands of therapists. Some people surrender their whole destiny into the hands of other people. They don't want to take responsibility. It's an easy way of saying, I never decided this. That's a wrong way to live. Unless somebody, Nebach, is a spiritual vegetable or an emotional vegetable. You have to be an empowered client. You have to be self-informed. You have to be able to take responsibility. If something is not working, if something doesn't feel right, if something doesn't make sense, if something is proving to be destructive, if something is not bringing healing to you or to the family, choose other paths. You have to have the courage to be able to ask tough questions. And not everybody will be able to answer those questions for you. Sometimes I have to speak to myself. I have to go into the innermost core of my soul and ask my neshama, Vas what do you have to say? God doesn't always live outside of me. God lives inside of me. And if you always run to the God outside of you, you never discover the God who is inside of you. And the God who is inside of you, that is your life, that is your destiny, that is your neshama. This is not an aloneness that is afraid of relationships or that shirks away from relationships or is too arrogant or too scared to seek advice. No, on the contrary. I want advice. I want guidance. I want to be mentored. I want to be challenged. I want to be stimulated. I need somebody to help me get out of my bias and blind spots and subjectivity. The Gemara says a prisoner could never unlock the shackles around his own arms. You need somebody with a key outside of prison to open up the gate and let you out. I could sit in the prison cell all day and ponder and ponder and reflect and meditate and be introspective, but it's all within a cell. I want to be open to be able somebody to say, maybe you got to think differently. Maybe you're just completely stuck in this way of life. There are people who are survivors. There are people who are children of Holocaust survivors. Because they're children of Holocaust survivors, they grew up in emotionally challenging homes. It's a miracle that you are what you are today. It's a miracle that the survivors could build families. But you have to realize how much pain there is in that survival. And some of us operate day-to-day life as though we are about to be destroyed again. That's our reference point. The survivors, when they emerged the next morning, it was hard for them to believe that they have a piece of bread. Sometimes you'll see survivors that they will never, ever... I remember my late father, he grew up in hunger in Soviet Union. He could not understand food going into the garbage. We American brats, we American brats don't know what it means that half the food doesn't go into the garbage. I was once at a program in the hotel. The guy told me 98% of the food ends up in the garbage. 2% of the food ends up in people's stomachs, and it's usually the bad part. The good parts go into the garbage. You know, we respect the garbage more than our bodies. The garbage, we give the healthy food. Our bodies, we give the unhealthy food. Lettuce goes to the garbage. Black and whites go into the system. It should be the other way around. Black and whites belong in the garbage. The lettuce belongs in the system. Okay, that's basically distorted values. (laughs) It was hard about people who grew up in certain situations. How do you throw out a piece of food? But it's also emotionally. Some people, every piece of energy, they have no energy to give. It's very, very hard. Some people feel that the natural state of life is to be miserable. When somebody is too happy, they want to know, what are you taking? If you're miserable, Baruch Hashem. Let's sigh together and feel Jewish. They say there were three, there were three Jewish ladies in, in Miami, and they were taking a walk on the boardwalk. Where else? On the way to lunch, of course. And one of them says, Oi! And the other one says, Oi, Veizmir! And the third one says, Oi, tatan And the fourth one says, Didn't we not make up that we're not talking about children today? Somehow it feels very Jewish to groan, to moan, to sigh. There was once a sophistic a person once asked me, Why is the Shemayna Esra so bigoted? I say, Where is it bigoted? 
He says, Rifa'enu Hashem Vinerofe. Bring us healing. Hale Bring recovery to all of our plagues, all of our illnesses. Because you're a good healer, Baruch Hashem. He heals the sick of his nation, Israel. He says, what about Gentiles? Doesn't he heal them? I said, no. I told this Gentile, it's a compliment for you. Trust me, be happy. He says, what are you talking about? I said, every Jew has this essential feeling that he's either sick or getting sick. I have a backache. Today, my back, my back must be a herniated disc. My back. My stomach, I don't know, my stomach, my heart. My wife says, I'm having a stroke. I might have a stroke. I died. I almost died. I'm going to die. I never met a Jew here in Shul. I say, how is life? Perfect! <laughs> the best you get is not too bad. Also, metakrecht. So we're basically, Jews have this condition, complaining and groan. So we're saying, God heals them. It's a compliment that you're not in this list. Don't worry about it. But people, it's not, this is not about judgment, it's about identifying thought processes. Some people don't realize that my entire, sometimes I don't realize my entire life I'm living in an orbit of trauma. I'm living in an orbit of abuse. I'm living in an orbit of oppression. I don't even know what it means to breathe freely. It's not my fault. I was born with a washing machine on my right shoulder, a second washing machine on my left shoulder, and the Grand Canyon on my head. I never, I don't know how to walk around without it. This, and I think everybody walks around with it. I never felt anything else. Gula doesn't begin with Gula. It begins with knowing that there's a state called Golos. But if Golos is normal, so then Golos becomes Gula. The beginning of Gula is knowing that it's Golos. If there's Golos, there could be Gula. If Golos is not Golos, if Golos is my only reality, if Golos is the status quo of reality, there's no room for Gula. But it's painful to become aware of Golos. It's expanding horizons. And sometimes you see a person Good people, kind people, generous people, people who give so much of themselves to do the right thing, and they're simply unaware that the option of joy, freedom, expansiveness, authenticity exists. They don't know. They never tasted it. They never felt it. Nobody ever told it to them. And it's not their fault at all. They grew up in an environment internally where there was so much internal criticism, so much internal judgment, there was no compassion, no compassion for me, no compassion for life, no compassion for my, my history, no compassion, therefore, for experiences. It always begins with Midas HaRachamim. Yaakov Asher Avram. Yaakov releases Chesed. Rachamim releases love. The Novi says, Yaakov liberates Avram. So there's two types of levadoi. There's two types of aloneness in the world. There's an aloneness that is a symptom of fear. I can't open up to anybody. I can't have a relationship with anybody. I stay closed up because that's the only place where I feel safe. If I open up to somebody, I'm going to open up not a can of worms, but as a woman once told me, a can of crocodiles. And crocodiles don't fit into a can. A can of worms, she told me, I can open up. But when I open it up, you're going to see crocodiles and alligators. I can't open that up, sorry. But that's, that's the first crocodile you have to get rid of. Paroi is defined in Yecheskel. Fascinating. The Haftar of Parshas Veira. Hatanin hagodol haroivitz besoichia oirav. The grand crocodile that lives in the Nile. If you're familiar with the Nile River that extends 4,200 miles, cuts through, I think, 11 countries, it's known for the great Nile crocodile. Yechesko couldn't have another image for Parai than the crocodile sitting in the Nile. Well, for one, he's the king of the Nile. You don't mess with the crocodile in the Nile. But there's also deep imagery and deep, deep uh, symbolism in this. The crocodile, when it opens its mouth, you ever saw the open mouth, at least on a video? It's pretty intense. It's pretty frightening. Lions are afraid. 
Tigers are afraid. Cheetahs are afraid. Buffaloes are afraid. Rhinos are afraid. Hippos are afraid. I don't know how much National Geographic you get. Says <laughs> in the mikveh, the crocodiles. It's in the mikveh flat. Nobody knows. But suddenly it makes an appearance. Who? That's how Paro saw himself. That was his position in the world. But what it means psychologically and emotionally is that this is the Melech Mitzrayim. When a person sees the world around you as a crocodile, as an alligator here to swallow you up, you see your own thoughts as crocodiles. I'm afraid of my own thoughts. I'm afraid of my own emotions. I don't let myself breathe. All I know is one word, responsibility, 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 which is a beautiful, beautiful word, but not when it's stripped. From the words dignity, joy, honesty, relationships, and life. Because then what often happens is I retreat into a very, very scary place. Part of retreating into a scary place includes the fact that I have to feign normalcy. I have to feign normalcy because I don't want to stand out in that sense as well. But internally my pillow is wet from tears. And sometimes there are so many tears that I can't even cry anymore. To be able to cry, my tears have to have a release. Sometimes my tears are so deep that they have already dried up. Or they can't even express themselves. The Zoyar says there's a kolopnima de yishtama ve kolopnima de lo yishtama. There's a voice that is inside that you can hear but there's an inner voice that you can't hear anymore. That's why we blow shoifan Rosh Hashanah. Why can't we just blow with our mouths? Why is a ram's horn so much better than my own mouth? What would be so bad if I would get up on the bimit Rosh Hashanah and I would go, do, 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 Anybody got a migraine headache? Do, same voice. Why God, God loves ram's horns? I'll tell you why. Open your hearts. There are sounds that you can't articulate with your own voice. Your voice doesn't carry them anymore. That's where the shoifer comes in. God says, give me those voices. I know you can't articulate it anymore. It's your most primal, primal, primal self. We need the simplicity of an animal to capture those voices. The ram, the sheep, or similar, similar mammals, they capture it. That primal space within yourself, you can't even articulate it as a sound. So there's a loneliness in life where a person says, I'm just a nebachdik, a victim, nobody cares, nobody knows, nobody sees, who cares for me, who wants me. I got no family, I got no support, I got no siblings, I got no friends, everyone is just out to get me in another way, and you enter into the mode of survival. And we know how to bequeath that to our children very, very well. And when we sometimes observe dysfunction happening in our homes, and we can't identify why, supper is always ready on time. There's always fresh untervesh. There's always fresh socks and, 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 and undershirts. There's always kugel for Shabbos. I cook already Wednesday. I start thinking about cooking on Sunday. Sometimes our hyper-organization eclipses our inner disintegration. Did you hear what I said? It wasn't poetic, it was true. <laughs> our hyper-organization sometimes eclipses our inner disintegration. I need everything to be in its right place because nothing is internally in any place. It's good to be organized. This is not the declaration of war against organization. Cook on Sunday for next Hanukkah. No problem. There are people who already have all their food for Pesach. Some people already have all their food for Sukkot. It's a wonderful experience. But make sure the outer order is not an escape from inner, from inner order. When the Balatanya was imprisoned by the Tsarist regime in 1798, he sent a kvittel to Rebbe Yitzchak of Baditchev. And his chassid, his name was Rebbe Yaakov, came to the Heleke Baditchev. 
and he told them that Balatanya was arrested. And at that point, he was taken away in wagons that were reserved for those who violated and were accused of treason and could be given the death penalty. Because of a terrible misira, it's not for now. And on the, he's on the way, and he goes to the Baditshev, his colleague, the Yitzhak of Baditshev. And the Yitzhak of Baditshev asks him, he says, did you see how they took him away? And he says, yeah, I was there. So he says, was he b'menucha? Was he serene? So Rabbi Yaakov says he was. So the Baditshevah says, Bechitsoinius or the Bepnimius? Was he serene externally? Or was he serene internally? He says, how would I know? <laughs> how would I know if the serenity was external or internal? He said, did they let him pack up some things? He said, yeah, because he was going to prison. They said, what did he, did you see what he packed first? He said, the first thing he packed is talus and tefillin. So the Baditshavah said, That means internally he was calm. Then he asked him for his mother's name. He said he doesn't remember his mother's name. He says, you don't know his mother's name? No. So he opened up a chumash. It opened up to Parshish Miketz. Vayar Yaakov kiyesh shever b'mitzrayim. Yaakov saw that there is grain in Egypt. Rashi says, yes, Shever doesn't only mean grain, Shever is also psura. He saw there's good news in Egypt. And the Badrishab said, Shever is Schneir ben Rifka. He opened up the Chumash. Sometimes life deprives people from outer serenity. Sometimes, Rahman al-Litzlan, you're running here and running there. There's crisis, there's difficulties. People end up in place. I don't have to elaborate. Sometimes there's great challenges. But there's a certain sense of calmness, of serenity within, even if without, things are very, very chaotic at certain points. And if you have a house, Baruch Hashem, with a bunch of kids, little ones, aggressive, and even not many, but to the few right ones, and even with one, but God blessed you with a personality or some other issues, you can have one person was absolutely Michigan. They say that parents are often as happy as the unhappiest child in the house. So you have 11 kids who are perfectly happy and one who's miserable and you have to be miserable. At soif kol because of him and he makes sure that you know it. But there's a certain type of manucha that comes from within and that comes from a connectedness. And for that you have to be very, very honest, very vulnerable. Very authentic. You have to be able to have at least a real relationship with one or two people and with God. But in addition, most importantly, you have to have a real relationship with yourself. If you don't have that relationship with yourself, to be able to ask yourself questions that you never want to ask yourself, to be able to put everything on the table, to be able to look at Paray in the face, Boyel Paray, asks the Zoyar, you don't say come to Paray, go to Paray. God tells Moshe, Lechel Pari. He doesn't say go to Pari. He says, come to Pari. Why does he say come to Pari? He should say, go to Pari. You know what the answer is? The Zoyar says, Moshe was afraid to face Pari. God couldn't say go to Pari. God said, come to Pari. We each have a Pari that we have to face. And it's frightening. It's so frightening that many of us don't even know how frightening it is, which is why we don't even open ourselves up to go there, because if you would already know how frightening it is, you can deal with it. You don't even identify the fear. All I know is that I will never ever go there because I don't want to open up the crocodile box, the Pandura box, and this is not Pandura, this is a crocodile. And that fear, which is so, so profound, and maybe I built my whole life around it. It's like when you have an infection and it develops into a scab. And then the scab covers itself up with another scab and another scab and another scab and more band-aids. And I have now built a mansion, but it's really a house of cards. I build a lifestyle. I build relationships. I build attitudes. And it's simply to give me breathing space. Winston Churchill said, we feed the crocodiles with the hope that they will eat us last. And that's how he defined appeasement. There is appeasement to terrorism, or in his days, Chamberlain came back from Hitler and said, peace in our times. And Churchill said, 
You have gained no peace and only war, but on his terms, not on your terms. Appeasement is feeding the crocodile with the hope, the vain hope, that he will eat you last. There's appeasement to terrorists. There's also appeasement to the terrorist inside of me, to the toxicity inside of me, to the pari inside of me. I feed my own crocodiles, and I just gain breathing time. But everything catches up at the end. Truth catches up. This is a generation that seeks truth. And that's why everything that has been repressed for so many years is now coming to the surface. So you might say, how did my parents get away with this? How did my grandparents get away with this? How did my teachers get away with this? How did schools get away with this? How did my community get away with this? How did my older sister and older brother get away with this? I'm not going to answer your question. I told that to you in the beginning of the class. But one thing I'll tell you, Don't compare, because now is a time of truth emerging. And when truth truth emerges, two things happen. A lot of mansions come crumbling down. A lot of things that look so tall and stable and beautiful come crashing down. That's why in this place they got no building. We move from tent to tent, from place to place. I come one morning into a class, nothing there. I have to find a new place. It's great. That's one thing that happens when truth comes out. A lot of idols come crashing, get smashed. But something else also happens. It gives us an opportunity to be able to deal with toxicity, to be able to face paroi, to be able to emancipate ourselves. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. It's an opportunity. Things that have been repressed for many generations, for many years, for many decades, can't be repressed anymore. Pain that people were ready to deal with and just go shh and give the nod and give the wink and let's just move on. Ain't working. Day after day after day, another getchka crumbles. Another idol gets shattered. Another myth gets exposed. Another supposed sacred reality crumbles and people feel disillusionment. And some people feel, oi, 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 it's not oi, 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 oi. These are symptoms of redemption. Because redemption could never happen when toxicity replaces sanity, when falsehood replaces truth, when fake gods replace the real God, and when cover-ups become the definition for religion. That is not redemption. That is more and more bondage, more and more exile. The moment these things emerge... And people actually get repulsed from lies, repulsed from falsehood, repulsed from myths, repulsed from dysfunction, repulsed from using fear as an excuse for truth. That's the moment that truth can begin to fester. The moment I can look at my own crocodiles, my own fears, I could reach a different type of aloneness. So there's the aloneness that comes from isolation, from segregation. I cut myself off from the world and I live in a shadow. I don't even have a relationship with myself. But then there's something else. There's something about your light that nobody else knows. There's something about your koiches, powers that nobody else knows. There's something about the divine in you that is yours. It's yours alone. Even close people to you, they can be there for you. They could listen to you. They could know you. They could support you. But there's something internally that belongs to you and you alone. And it has to be that way because it's your light. It's your neshama. It's your infinity. That aloneness is not a weakness. That aloneness is not because you're allergic or afraid of vulnerability. That aloneness comes with full vulnerability. In fact, the more vulnerable I am, the more truthful I am, in many ways, the more alone I become because I get to touch. Touch the core of self in which my eye meets the divine eye. This is an aloneness that is not afraid of relationships. This is an aloneness that follows relationships. The more connected, the more alone. Because this is not an aloneness of weakness and fear. It's not an aloneness of pettiness and victimhood. It's not an aloneness to give me excuses why I'm so miserable and I hate the world and everybody hates me. Somebody once said just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean everybody's not out to get me. I'm paranoid, but everybody's still out to get me. Both are true. This is not that aloneness. This is an aloneness that comes from inner strength, from the fact that I opened up 
that I'm here, that I've been challenged, that I'm ready for growth, and yet, and yet, as you get closer and closer to your own truths, there's certain things that are yours. They're yours. It's your soul. It's your Weltanschauung. It's your God. And I can't give that to somebody else, just like nobody can give that to me. And those are decisions that I have to make from a very, very deep place. Stam, I mentioned, I mentioned the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I'll tell you something else I heard from his secretary. His name is Rabbi Label Groner. And he needed a shidda. He was, he was dating a girl. It was in 1954. And I heard from him that at some point, you know, he dated and he went out and there was courtship, as they called it then, courtship. And uh, at some point, he asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe if he should marry this girl or not marry this girl. And the Rebbe looked at him. He would become Mamish's personal secretary for 50, 60 years. And the Rebbe said, Das is a frage. Nicht dein Tate, nicht dein Mame, nicht ich kennen entfernen. This is a question not your father, not your mother, and not I can answer. Das darfst du allein entfernen mit deinem Kudas Halev. This you have to answer on your own with your, with your own inner heart. With your own inner heart. But, <laughs> I know this is a little bit of a complicated sugya, how shiduchim are created. Yeah. Very often, it's a very painful reality when the boy and the girl are disregarded, who they are, who they really are. The main thing is, let's marry them off, let's ship them out of the house, they'll grow up and the family will look good. And in that dysfunctionality, many a life is destroyed. Yes, sometimes kids are immature. And in communities where they marry off the girls at 17 and the boys at 18, obviously parents have to have a lot, a lot of input. But not now giving an opinion and getting into the different kahillas and different shittas, how it's done in chassidish communities and very chassidish communities and yeshivish communities and litvish communities, modern orthodox communities, other chassidic communities, whatever it is. That's not our discussion today. Wherever you are and however you are, never see your position as trying to escape the truth of the children. Ultimately, they are going to have to bear the consequences unless you believe that all of life and all of religion is just a cover-up. And if you believe that, woe and nebach unto you, but your children are going to spit it out. And that's what's happening all the time now. People have deceived themselves that everything is really a cover-up because they did it to themselves. It was done to them, so how much better can I be? But that's not the case. You don't have to be in gullus. There's a time... As Jews used to say when you could scream, Daloi Galos, enough bondage, enough exile. Paroi could send the Jewish people out of Galos, but how do the Jewish people send themselves out of Galos? That's sometimes much harder. And that's why it says they had to run away. Because if they wouldn't run, they would stay there. And that's why they kept on trying to come back. Why are you coming back to this dysfunction? It's like battered women's syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. You know those syndromes? You go back to your abuser because it's familiar. It's familiar. That familiarity becomes toxic. You need suspense. You need mystery. You followed me in the desert. And thus, and thus, we have two types of aloneness in life. You have an aloneness that is weakening and toxic. You have an aloneness that is strengthening and empowering. And sometimes when it comes to core issues of my life, nobody can answer your questions for you. You have to believe something else that you can answer your own question. And I'll tell you why. There's a book called Tanya. It was written by Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi. In the introduction he says, I have recorded here all the answers to all the questions. So I once asked my students, how does somebody write about such a thing in a book of 53 chapters? A little book, 53 chapters, I recorded all the answers to all the questions? Come on! The answer to that is, because it's based on one premise. 
And the premise that it's based on in the second chapter is, as I quote, V'nefesh Hashem is Yisrael, Hichelek Eloika Mimaal Mamash. The expression Chelek Eloika Mimaal says in many Svarim. He adds one word, Mamash. There's a second soul in every Jew that is a piece of Hashem, Mamash. Mamash means Mamash. <laughs> How do you say Mamash in English? For real, truth. Mamash comes from the word Mimush. It's tangible, you can touch it. When you chap on a Yid, when you chap on a Jew, when you chap on yourself, what are you touching? You're not touching a shtick flesh, a piece of flesh. You're touching oh, that too, but inside of it is a chelik elekam mimal mamash, a fragment of infinity, a piece of God. The divine light is here, chelik If that's true, it means that we are all the answers to all the questions. Where do they lay? Where do they ultimately lay? I have to answer this question. It's going to be defeating the whole class if I answer this question. Somebody's going to have to volunteer. Right. Thank you. <laughs> all That's why he, I recorded here all the answers to all the questions. Because I'm not answering all the questions. What I'm telling you is that the answer is inside of you. And in that place, you'll have all the answers. If I had to answer all the questions, I can't have answers to all the questions. I don't have to have the answers to all the questions. What I'm telling you is, you have it. Somebody once went into a Barnes & Noble store, and they came to the lady standing by the counter, and says, excuse me, can you help me? Sure. Where is the self-help section? She says, if I tell you, it's going to defeat the purpose. Smart girl. If I tell you, it's going to defeat the purpose. Now my chelik elikami mal could be trapped. That's why I need other people. I need other people not to answer my question. I need other people to help me reach a place where I can answer my question. And that's why there will be two types of people who will answer your questions. There will be people who will answer your questions and try to substitute. You're answering your questions? Stay away. And there will be people who always know they have to give you one answer. And the answer they have to give you is, let me help you find the answer inside of yourself. That's a very different type of answer. Very different type of answer. That's an answer that trusts you. That's an answer that empowers you. That's an answer that believes that God wants you. That's an answer that believes that God is inside of you. That's an answer that believes there is uniqueness, there is individuality, there is a mission, there is a journey that you have. This is an answer that appreciates that you are not me, I can't live for you. Sometimes you can die for another person, but you could never live for another person unless you kill them. Did you hear what I just said? You could die for another person, but the only way you could live for another person is if you kill them. Mothers can die for their children. They can't live for their children unless they kill their children. And that's the sad part. I can't live for you unless you're not alive. Because living for you means that there's no you. There's no you. Sometimes we have a situation where there's somebody who can't function on their own chas v'shalom. And yes, we have to make all decisions for them. But when we take good people, healthy people, normal people, have the potential to live, and we live for them, we strip them from their dignity. But when somebody is ill, we have to be able to identify that too and know how to deal with that, at least on a temporary level, till they could become healthy. Addiction is a disease. Addiction is an illness. And sometimes when you take the back seat and you say, oh, I let people be independent. You're not letting them be independent. You're letting them die. It's like a sick child, an infant who's disabled. I let my kid be independent. No, 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 no. (laughs) There's a time when I have to be able to help you become who you are. But I have to help you become who you are, knowing the strength, knowing the weaknesses. That's why it could be all the, question, all the answers to all the questions. Because the premise is, you have the answer. 
But you have the answer deep inside. For this, you have to have a relationship with your soul. You have to know what your chelik alekamimal is. You have to talk to it. You have to be able to consult it. You have to be able to experience it. But when you experience it and consult it, you will have all the answers because it has the answers. It's inside of you. There is infinity. Inside of you is the source of wisdom. We are, what is my role? What is our role? Just to help you be able to get to that place or to be able to get closer to that place. That's why there'll always be two types of answers. You'll always hear it. There's the answer that respects that place in you, and there's the answer that wants to replace that place in you. How did Rabbi Weinreb know that the Lubavitcher Rebbe's answer is true? Because it resonated. It resonated. It resonated. You've got to talk to yourself. He knew how true it was. Because his self came to life. His true self came to life. Based on all this, we will be able to appreciate a little bit of that unique mitzvah of painting the blood on the doorposts as a preparation for redemption, which gave Pesach its name, that continues in Boyan B'Shalach, and I will explore, God willing, next week. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.